Well, uh, my kids remind me daily, at least some of them, how many days it is till Christmas. Kids, how many days till Christmas? Anybody? Twelve. See how quick that answer came? (laughs) I'd have to almost get my calculator out. But no, they know. Okay. So guys, the days are counting down. It's very exciting. And this morning, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the first seven verses of the book of Luke. And these are words that you are no doubt very familiar with. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all, who went, to be, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, This is a passage of Scripture as I was studying it this week and thinking about the Christmas story throughout this season that has filled me with an added poignancy this year. Because I have a secret to tell you, church family. Sarah and I are pregnant. It's true. It is true. I don't mean to distract from the Word of God, but this seems like a natural place to let you in on our little secret. Uh, We are unexpectedly pregnant. This is not anything we were planning to do, uh, but here we are. (laughs) Dave is raising his hands. Dave, I know I still haven't Googled it. Sarah told me not to. (laughs) It's a bit strange for us. You know, Bowdoin's graduating from high school. All our kids are moving forward, and it feels like Sarah and I are moving back in time. Back to the days of sippy cups and diapers, and it's just crazy. We're still trying to get our head around it. Um, The baby is likely to be born in June and is a boy. I know. So we're very excited. Can't wait to see God's handiwork. But one thing is for sure, during this strange season, we're kind of taking stock of all of our baby supplies, and we don't have any. When we we were done with Charlie, we gave that to people who thought we would need them. We have no crib. We have no buggy. We have no, I guess stroller is a more appropriate word. We have, I think we have one sippy cup left. Uh, which is a holdover. Charlie still sometimes uses it, but we got nothing. And I put myself in the shoes of Joseph and Mary arriving in Bethlehem. And I I can, any of you who have had children or any of you with an imagination really can put yourself in their shoes. They've got a baby on the way. Mary's about to pop. They've got to find someplace suitable for this to happen. And when they show up, crisis There's no room anywhere. There's not a bed. There's not a corner of a room. There's nothing. They go to the inn, and there's no room. That's a very famous fact. Even non-Christians know this about the Christmas story. There's no room at the inn. And so the only place that they can find accommodations is where the animals are kept, which not okay. (laughs) 
not acceptable. I wish I could be with Joseph and Mary when they're shown the place where in all likelihood Mary's going to give birth and there's animals and all that goes with animals, poop on the floor, mice, things scurrying in the hay, probably fleas. It's gross. Smells bad. Well, I remember as a kid, this, I mean, I loved the Christmas story. I just, it's all wrapped up with Christmas for me. But this was a part of the Christmas story that, honest to goodness, was just very confusing for me as a kid. And I'll tell you why. I was blessed to be born to Barry and Janet Tate. And from the very earliest age I can remember, they told me Bible stories. I grew up with every spiritual advantage. I am so grateful to God for my mom and dad. But I, woke, I grew up on Bible stories. I knew them. I, my parents did their job. I knew, for example, that when they were trapped by the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind them, God showed up and made a way. I know that when they were starving in the desert, they had no food. God caused food, miracled it into existence out of the air. It settled over the ground as manna. I know that when they had no water, God brought water out of a rock. God is a provider God. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's the one who meets his people's needs. And so when it was very confusing to me that when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, God, why can't you provide a place for them to stay? Isn't that weird? I mean, God provided a whole country for his people. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. He filled the widow's jar day after day after day. And now Mary, heavy with God himself in her womb, there's no room for them? Whatever happened to God is the provider, shepherd God. And it wasn't until I was an adult that it finally dawned on me, I'm kind of thick up here sometimes, that this was all on purpose. This was God's plan A. This is how exactly how he wanted it to be, and no other way would have done. So that's the surprise behind this moment in our Bible story. All this Christmas season, we are studying the great surprises of the Bible, of the Christmas story. And the great surprise in this moment is this, that to God it was better and more needed that there be no room at the inn and that the baby be laid in a feeding trough for its crib. I want to look beyond the mere facts of the Christmas story this morning, though, to the meaning. I think this is really the meat of the stuff. This is really what we need to chew on this morning and think deeply about it's one thing to note that God, in His wisdom, ordained that the manger is where Jesus would be laid as a baby. But why? That's the question. Why is that preferred? What is the meaning behind the manger? This was a deliberate choice on the part of God. There is intentional meaning, and we need to dig to find out what it is. One of those things I've highlighted in my Bible, and I've told you on previous Sundays that I use my Bible as a tool. I mark it up, I highlight things, and I have taken a big green highlighter and highlighted every verse I can find in the Bible that explains Christmas. 
Here's what I mean. Jesus Himself loved to do this. If you read through the Gospels with a green highlighter, you will come across these verses with some frequency where Jesus says things like this. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. When Jesus says, I came, He's explaining Christmas. He's explaining the meaning and the significance of His coming into the world. I have come... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's Christmas. Or when he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's explaining Christmas right there. Luke 4.18, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's an explanation of Christmas. He sent me. Or the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I could keep going. I've got loads of these, but I'll hold off for now. Someday maybe we'll do a Christmas series on Jesus Explains Christmas. That would be kind of cool. But the passage that seems to me to address the meaning behind the manger most clearly, most pointedly, is actually not something Jesus said, but one of his disciples, John. In 1 John 3, 8, under the, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I think this gets right to the heart of the manger, and I'll explain why. I'm going to read that again. The reason the Son of God appeared... The reason for Christmas was to destroy the works of the devil. There is a very interesting scene in the New Testament. Jesus had sent out his disciples two by two into the surrounding region. These ordinary workaday kind of guys were now dressed, as it were, in the authority and the power of prophets. They went out with borrowed authority, borrowed power, Jesus cloaking them in his mysterious abilities. And they went from town to town, thundering their message of repentance in the coming kingdom. And not only that, but also because they were operating under that that borrowed power and authority, they were given the ability to work all kinds of miracles in Jesus' name. They healed the sick. And they were also casting out demons, just as they had seen Jesus doing. And when they returned to Jesus, they excitedly, in verse 17 we read this out of Luke 10, it says that with great joy, in other words, great excitement, they're super amped up about this fact. They get to Jesus and they tell him this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus answers them in this moment in what I think is a very curious way, a strangely sober and cautionary way. The first words out of his mouth in response to this joyous, exciting news was not, I know, cool, right? (laughs) It doesn't say that. What he says to these guys who are super excited, filled with joy, and some other things too, was this. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I was there. I saw it. 
That's what he says. And then he goes on. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is a curious exchange, I think, in many levels. It's actually kind of strange. It requires some thought. Jesus answers the exuberant enthusiasm of his disciples who had just tasted for the first time the awesome power that was at their disposal through Jesus. And probably also for the first time, these men who had been absolute nobodies before coming to Jesus, they had experienced the great admiration and the gratitude of the people as well. And so instead of enthusiasm, he answers them with cautionary language. Jesus leads off with, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And when we combine those words with the language that follows, which contained a rebuke, not to rejoice that the demons were subject to them in his name, but to rejoice in something else, namely their salvation, it seems to me that when Jesus looked on the excited faces of his disciples, and more than that, when he looked deeper beyond their faces into the inner world of their heart's motivations, their lust, their longings, their misshapen, disordered desires. He saw that the things they had experienced while operating under their borrowed authority had excited within them a powerful and growing pride. And so when he says, I, I saw Satan fall, I think he is saying something like, oh, I've seen this before, haven't I? Passages like Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 tell us that in the beginning, Satan was the beginning, was the highest of the angelic beings. He was closest to the throne of God. But at some point, he desired not to be close to the throne of God, he desired to be on the throne of God. And so we read this in Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Satan was the most glorious of all created beings. But at the end of the day, he was still only just that, a creature. He was strong, but he was not omnipotent. He had great knowledge, but he was not omniscient. He had some measure of authority, more than other creatures, but he was not Lord. And Satan chafed under that. At some point, pride was found in him, and it grew. It was like a cancer that took him over. And Satan, not content to be alone in his rebellion, polluted the mind of Adam with his own grasping desire for the place of God. 
You've heard how in the garden Satan came and told Adam and Eve that if you eat of the fruit, you will not die. You will be like God. And Adam made the disastrous decision that it would be better to be a God than to, than to continue trusting in God. So he ate, and like Satan, he fell, and was likewise banished. And so the thing we need to see is this. In the great story in which we're living in, the great overarching story of God's redemption of fallen man, we go all the way back to the beginning, and what is the thing that gave birth to the fall? What is that which gave birth to all the sin and misery and disorder and cancer and COVID-19 and terrorist threats, all of it, all of the sin, it was all born from pride. Pride is the root of it all. It all flows, first in Satan, then in Adam, and now in us. Pride is the root of every sin. Every sin is a decision, whether consciously or made reflexively in our fallen hearts, that says, God will not bring me happiness, this will. God's judgments will be replaced with my own. In every sin, in every bit of error, the root behind it is a prideful grasping for the place of God. This is at the root of it all. Grasping vainglorious pride, first in Satan, then also in Adam, and there in the polluted hearts of his disciples, here in our hearts as well, brought forth into God's perfect created order, death and all the awful misery and horror of this fallen world. And so it's no surprise that just as pride is what gave birth to all that is evil, that the antidote, the remedy, should be found in the perfect humility of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice on the cross. There is great symmetry to the story that we're living in. Pride is what brought about the fall, and the remedy is found in the humility of Christ. 1 John 3.8 tells us again, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason for Christmas, was to destroy the works of the devil. The pride of Satan caused all that's broken to be broken, and humility is the fix. We get one of the most profound descriptions of humility anywhere is found in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then get the great humility of Christ in these lines. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus who emptied himself, laying aside his divine nature, became a man in a perfectly sinless body. And he used that body to associate with and serve 
the most lowly and unworthy beings, us. And He took that body to the cross. The Creator allowed creatures to beat Him, mock Him, hoist Him up and murder Him in a shameful public way, and in doing so, He took the punishment for my rebellion, your rebellion, our rebellion against the throne of God onto Himself. So why the manger? Why was there no room for them in the inn? John Piper says this. He says, the manger is a rebuke to the pride of Satan. It's an absolute rebuke to the pride that caused the fall. And we see this if we hold the two up and juxtapose them together. Satan was a creature who wanted to seize the place of the Creator. Jesus was the Creator who put on flesh and became one of us. Satan was cast down. Jesus came down of his own volition. Satan attempted to grasp the place of God to which he was not entitled. Jesus, who being in very nature God, considered not equality with God something to be grasped. Satan came to rob, steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. The two here are clearly contrasted. The manger is all about the remedy, the antidote, the only fix to this fallen world, which is deep, sacrificial humility. And so we come back to that very unchristmassy moment when Jesus looked into the pride-filled hearts of his disciples and said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I was there. I saw it. Down through the years, wars have been waged over money, property, honor, power, patriotism, lots of things. But this war... The greatest conflict in human history is over you. And it's being fought right now in your hearts and minds. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil in me and in you. And so we come to the communion table. I believe very strongly that communion is given to us as a reminder in the Bible for many, many reasons. And one of the key reasons I find is that in the biblical instructions surrounding communion, it is a natural time for God's people to repent, to draw before God and confess sins that are in our lives in the safety of the knowledge of His grace. Our God is not an uncaring, unloving, distant God who demands that you bring up your wrongdoings all the time because he delights in them. <laughs> he, he, he invites us to have this conversation with him at the communion table because he wants you first and foremost to be aware of his tremendous grace. That all the things that you confess to God, all the sins, have been paid for. This is a tremendous time to draw before Him in safety. As it says in the Bible, perfect love drives out fear. What does that mean? It means fear of punishment. When we understand the love of God, 
and that is rammed home to us, knowledge of His grace, we realize that for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus for salvation, there is no hell awaiting for us. There's not. It's not. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. We are able to come before God and confess these things with the without the fear that He's going to take away that which is most precious and needed our salvation. He wants us to have that conversation with Him in perfect safety. And in that place of trust and confidence in His promises, we are able to fight sin because we love Him and we love who He is. We want to be like Him. We're able to offer up that as an act of heartfelt, love-driven obedience because He's taken away the stick And now all of your giving him obedience, righteousness, is an expression of your honest from the heart love for him and who he is. There is again such a perfect mirror symmetry to the story of man's fall and subsequent redemption on the cross. In the garden, there were loads of trees by which one could eat and live, but there was only one that would cause you to die. And on this side of the fall, there are many ways to die, but there is only one way, one truth, one life. There's only one way to know life. Adam exited paradise when he decided it would be better to be a god than to trust in God. And all of us sons and daughters of Adam may only enter back in when we, st- when we see striving in our own power, trying to save ourselves, and trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. Our tree of life is the cross, and its fruit is the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. Adam ate and was banished. We eat and are welcomed home. Jesus told His disciples, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And the communion table is a place where we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. In humility, we come to this table to proclaim and celebrate that we trust in our Savior and we have died to trying to save ourselves. We come to this table to die to the sin that so easily corrupts, pride. In uh, 1 John 3, 8, Jesus said again, the Son of Man appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And Chad Bird writes, at the death of Jesus, there was a great rattling of chains. The links of evil that bound us snapped in two. A world held in bondage to the dragon was, in the death of the Son of God, immediately and irrevocably freed forever from his captivity. But we're freed to what? This is the other side of the equation, brothers and sisters. Very often we speak of salvation of what we've been saved from, but we've been saved to some things. One is to living for God, to living for Him, to pursuing righteousness, not because we fear hell, that's been taken away, but because we love Him. We love what's right and good, and we pursue it. So in this time, before we take the bread and the cup together, I would invite you just to spend a quiet moment in prayer. Draw before the Lord if there are any areas in your life, any strongholds of the enemy in your heart. Confess them. Ask for help in tearing them down.
The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for coming, for sending Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. God, we were so stained with the pride, with sin of pride. God, in our judgments, we had replaced your word with our own human wisdom. We were seeking happiness in many things other than you. We pridefully insisted on our ability to save ourselves and thereby rejected our need for a Savior. Father, we were hopelessly lost, separated, when Jesus came. And he came to destroy that work of pride. And Father, in doing so, he modeled for us a deep humility. Father, Jesus became a man, and we, in following his examples, become like other kinds of men. He came to us, and so, Father, I pray that we would go to others. He came to meet needs, to set the captives free, not to be served, but to serve. He came, Lord, not for the righteous, but for sinners. And God, I pray in this moment, after taking the cup and eating the bread, that you would shape our hearts, shape our inner world to look more like the God who saved us. Give us hearts for the sinners. Give us a love for those who are far off. Stir us up, Lord, with a heart for mission. God, make us into people who love you, who love others, and who love in action. And Father, we pray all these things with gratitude for all that Christmas means and the meaning of the manger. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.